Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Hello, I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Provider Relations at Trapello and one of the hosts of the Precision Medicine Podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Tony Maliocco, Chair of Anatomic Pathology at the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center, and we'll be discussing new challenges for the pathologists in the era of precision medicine. Dr. Maliocco's research focuses on finding the molecular mechanisms of cancer progression and the development of drug resistance. In addition, he works on the development of clinical markers of radiotherapy resistance using cervical cancer as a model system as GYN and breast pathology is his specialty. Please help me welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, Dr. Tony Maliocco. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jerome. It's my pleasure to be here. When predictive markers like ER and PR, HER2, emerged, Dr. Maliocco, hospital labs found a way to bring that in-house and turn it into a revenue source. But today, we have a lot of specialty reference labs who are only focused on genomics. So what impact does this have on the community pathologist's ability to keep up with emerging biomarkers and the data in order to effectively advise cancer-treating physicians? Yes, um, thank you for bringing up this topic. It's very timely and uh, very important. Over the last 10 years, there's really been an explosion in technologies, particularly in molecular genomics, that are being implemented into cancer care. These technologies are really revolutionizing the way that we understand how cancer behaves, but they're also essential for oncologists to select the right therapies for their patients. Most notably, we've seen the greatest advances in lung cancer, where now there are multiple targeted therapies along as immune therapies for patients with lung cancer. Selecting the right targeted therapy requires extensive testing of the specimen. Now, as you point out, doing this type of testing is very challenging, and often it's beyond the scope of a community hospital lab. That means that a community hospital lab is faced with trying to find a reference lab that can provide this type of test. And this it can be a problematic activity, as there are many different reference labs available and the, uh, the ability to select the right one can be a challenge for community pathologists. Yeah. What has been the history? I mean, I, I get into conversations with pathologists uh, who, when ER and PR came out, there was a debate on whether or not they were necessary to test for every patient. What has been the conversation amongst your peers? about bringing these different molecular tests into the laboratory and routinely testing them for cancer patients? Right. Well, well, I work at a, a cancer center, a very large one. The Moffitt Cancer Center is uh, actually the third largest by patient volume in the United States. Uh, it's currently ranked number six uh, by U.S. News and World Report in terms of uh, rankings. And so at this institution, uh, the uh, oncologists are very forward thinking. Uh, which means that they're writing the guidelines, uh, they're running the pivotal clinical trials, and they're the ones that are actually driving the lab in many instances in terms of demanding 
that the internal hospital lab produce advanced testing technologies for them to deploy for their patients to enroll them on trials and to better understand the disease. So at a place like Moffitt, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, for bringing in this new type of testing. Bringing estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor in for breast cancer, um, it took time. Uh, it, it happened over a period of, uh, of many years, but it was based on technology uh, called immunohistochemistry in, in the second generation that most hospitals had. So uh, pathologists were comfortable with that technology. Now, looking at molecular technologies, uh, there's only a subset of pathologists that have expertise and specific training in molecular diagnostic technology. So um, many pathologists feel somewhat uncomfortable with these technologies uh, because they are very recent, they're complicated, it's hard to understand how the data will be used and analyzed. So there is this variation in how pathologists approach this. In large academic centers, generally pathologists embrace the technology. They view it as being cutting edge and giving us new insight into tumor biology. In community practice, it's different. I've had the opportunity to visit many community centers and speak with pathologists there. One of the challenges in community centers are that pathologists have to do a lot of multitasking. So they have limited time. Many of the pathologists have been trained some time ago, so these new technologies are foreign to them. So they feel challenged by them. They're not quite sure how to access them. And sometimes they feel pressured by the oncologists to use them. So there are many community pathologists that feel uncomfortable about deploying these technologies, and they're looking for sometimes help and guidance in in how to do this. So I can say that there is still a lot of debate between pathologists and oncologists when the technology should be used. You mentioned in breast cancer that now it's standard, every breast cancer should have a ER, PR, and HER2 test. It's also becoming standard now that maybe every breast cancer should also have a BRCA1 and 2 sequencing, particularly if they're triple negative breast cancers. So there are new tests coming in that that even impact breast cancer too. The challenges are is how to implement these tests. The technologies are costly and insurers don't reliably pay for them. So uh, this has led to a lot of debate uh, at the current time. Yeah. Speaking of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest challenges with implementing precision medicine, as we know, are many of these genomic tests are not reimbursed and are only paid for by insurance through submitting either a prior auth or after appeal by some of those laboratories. But in your opinion, what needs to happen in order to gain greater access to precision medicine tools and have insurance pay for them? Yes, and insurance needs to pay for things that are medically necessary. So I think the medical community needs to make a strong case that these tests are not research tests, that these tests are medically necessary, they're essential for proper diagnosis and for proper treatment of our cancer patients. If the medical voice is insufficient, I think we also have to look to patient advocates and have them speak out on behalf of patients as well that these technologies and the overall scheme of things aren't really that expensive. 
I've seen some analysis say the cost of testing and laboratory services are less than 3% of the medical budget, yet they contribute almost 90% of the actionable information. So it is extremely cost effective to perform testing. And I think it's a gap in terms of knowledge, in terms of the value of these particular tests. Perhaps it's a reflection that the technologies have advanced very quickly and that there's a lag between the payers understanding how they should be ideally used and that they have truly transitioned from research into routine clinical care. So this is a very, very important area. And I think it is an area that's impeding the development and availability of molecular tests. And that's an area that we need to address. Ashley Moffitt, you guys are very unique because you've built your own molecular diagnostics lab. Um, what was the vision for creating the lab and, and what impact has that made on the institution? The Moffitt Cancer Center is actually one of the youngest comprehensive cancer centers in the United States, I believe something like 35 years young, so which is young in terms of institutional terms. And when Moffitt was created, it was created on a unique model that was very patient-centered and team-orientated. So at Moffitt, Moffitt has always been forward-thinking. And in fact, it fully engaged something called total cancer care, which was the foundation for personalized oncology as early as 2006. And back then, Moffitt partnered with Merck and others to create something called the total cancer care program, where now over 150,000 patients have been enrolled. They give their tissues and their tissues are molecularly profiled and they volunteer their medical information so that we can really understand the molecular basis of cancer and how we can better classify cancer to better select therapies. So I think Moffitt was always very fully invested in this. So when there became real clinical demands for next generation sequencing, for advanced genomics, there was a big push from Moffitt leadership and Moffitt oncologists to make this technology available right on site, right in-house within Moffitt. And there are reasons for that. Uh, the first is to understand the technology so that we could have it in our own hands and really understand how it works. Uh, the second is to support research so that we could learn new things and how to improve the technology. The third is to support clinical trials so that we'd always have the latest technology available for our patients. And so that's what really drove it, this commitment to early access and to patient care. So it was really our leaders and our oncologists that really drove this and really led the foundations to Moffitt's commitment to personalized oncology. And you really can't have personalized oncology without having a full molecular service. And that enables you to do the most advanced testing, the most efficient costing, and in the fastest turnaround time possible. Yeah. You mentioned the early adopters, and I've been in the what we now know as the precision medicine industry for nearly 16 years. And, you know, back then there were few oncologists who really believed in biomarker-directed therapy and even fewer pathologists who really had it. One of your colleagues, Dr. Jose Lopez, he wrote an article in The Pathologist that was titled The Invisible Doctor. And what he suggested is that the role of the pathologist will be diminished as precision medicine evolves. Now, do you see 
an opportunity for pathologists to be the resident expert in genomic biomarkers as they have been for prognostic and predictive markers in the past. Y yes, absolutely. So pathologists are more than just microscopists. They are physicians first and foremost, but they are lab experts. Pathologists understand every type of testing. They understand how it's to be used and how to be implemented. And they understand how to interact with the medical team. So I think it's completely natural for pathologists to take ownership of the molecular genetic testing and incorporate it into pathology practice. So currently in a hospital like MOFA, we offer over 2,000 different tests and pathologists preside over these and we're continuously introducing new ones. So pathologists are really at the very center of the information that drives medicine. So it's incumbent on the pathologists to maintain their expertise, to remain engaged on the clinical side, and to remember that they are physicians and that they're not just, as I said, microscopists, and it's really their duty to manage this data and to contribute to it and to learn how to understand how to utilize it better for patient care. Yeah, I think one of the remarkable things that Dr. Lopez mentioned is he suggested that pathologists, similar to the genetic counselor, there's an opportunity for the pathologist to be the genomic counselor, to have even office hours to counsel a, a patient on their genomic expression. What, what do you think about that? Um, I, th I think it's a very interesting idea. As he pointed out, that uh, often patients don't even know that pathologists exist in popular media, on television, sometimes you see surgeons and internists appear to be doing the work of pathologists and pathologists are not featured. So um, once patients become aware of pathologists, uh, sometimes they become curious about them. And in my practice, I've had the occasion to interact with patients on numerous occasions. They've come to my office to review their slides. We've discussed uh, their case. We've discussed what other tests might be available to them. And in most cases, uh, the patients uh, seem to be very interested in pathology practice and were very keen to learn more. So I think about the idea of pathologists interacting more directly with patients is an interesting one. But pathologists aren't always fully trained or experienced in doing that. So there probably will have to be a transition period or identification of pathologists that are more interested in doing that uh, compared to others that may not want to be involved so much with direct patient care. Mm -hmm. For those of you out there on LinkedIn or on social media, please follow Dr. Malioko. You can find him on LinkedIn. Do you have any other social media uh, tags or platforms that people can follow you? Yeah, yes, definitely. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Malioko Tony. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website called Lifeline Diagnostics that I write blogs on. And, um, um, and, and so I'm, I'm quite available and happy to engage in, in discussion. I like to write about current trends. And one of the most exciting things is uh, almost every day there's a new breakthrough in terms of discovery about the biology of cancer and about new potential therapies. And uh, there are so many new immuno-oncology therapies coming. 
There's so many new ways to combine them with other therapies. And one of the really cool things that's happening at Moffitt is uh, something called evolutionary biology and evolutionary biology of cancer, where we're really understanding how to manage cancer better so that we don't force it into be- developing drug resistance. So these are very exciting times for personalized medicine, and it's transitioning uh, very, very fast almost on a weekly basis there are there are new developments liquid biopsies more expanded genomic analysis microRNA it goes on and on and that's not even getting into artificial intelligence and digital pathology so there's plenty of areas for people to get interested in and get involved and you know particularly uh, scientists and uh, high technology people the more they know about opportunities in pathology the better as well as we can work in teams to develop some convincing new diagnostic services awesome you know, one, you're one of the very few pathologists, and that's the reason why I bring up social media. For those of you out there, please follow him because you're one of the very few pathologists who speaks and writes articles on precision medicine. And my question, I guess, is kind of two-part. What makes the voice of the pathologist unique in this era of precision medicine? And is CAP and CLIA adopting a similar message to become um, the go-to experts on genomics? Yeah, yes, uh, thank you for, uh, for the plugs. I really appreciate that, uh, and thanks for following me. I think pathology is one of the more misunderstood specialties. To become a pathologist, uh, you know, a typical course is li- like myself. You've gone to undergraduate. I did my undergraduate in Lethbridge, and then I did medical school in Edmonton in, in Canada. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and pathology looked interesting. So I spent four years doing pathology. And then I did two more years after that doing research in molecular genomics. And uh, I actually went back to a practice that was in Saskatoon. It was a very broad practice and did everything from forensics to cytopathology to molecular. And I think that, you know, many pathologists have quite a broad background. But uh, first and foremost, they are physicians. So they do understand medical disease. Often it's been said that pathologists are the doctor's doctor, that we always see the most interesting cases, that other specialists come to us with their most challenging cases, and we have the tools that enable them to answer those, those, those cases. So I think that pathology is uniquely positioned in that we see the interesting cases, we see the technology, we have them right in our very own lab and we can access them. So, and we work in teams with oncologists, uh, particularly at large cancer centers, the multidisciplinary team always has a pathologist. And now uh, routine tumor boards are typically led by a pathologist. So the value of pathology is apparent to, uh, to oncologists. So I, I think the, uh, that pathology is really ideally placed to, to help move this field forward. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Malioko, I really appreciate you coming on and discussing the new challenges for pathology in the era of precision medicine, because as you mentioned, the pathologist, you cannot execute precision pathology without um, excellent diagnosis, and that lies in the hands of the pathologist. So we appreciate that. 
Well, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me on. I think there's a, this is a revolutionary time in pathology and genomics. I hope pathologists stay central to it. As I said, they are experts in the lab. They have a singular focus on lab quality and uh, patient service. So I think the future is very bright for pathology, and I really look forward to what new developments uh, are coming down the road. We do, and I know our listeners do. So I want to thank Dr. Tony Malioko and all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And don't forget, you can download full transcripts of today's episode at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you probably know someone else who would. So please tell them. They'll thank you, and so will we. 